Amen. All right. Um, so um, I was planning on uh, doing a little summer series for us before uh, we jumped back into First Corinthians, but I decided the summer is a little like off. Uh, it's a little inconsistent. Although I, I must say, I'm pretty proud. There's a lot of people here. I think like if Zach didn't put out 50, we probably would have filled out like all the chairs. So thanks, guys. Um, and so we're going to do a new series, a little mini series uh, in the fall, and then we'll resume First Corinthians. But if you guys have your Bibles, um, I invite you to turn with me to First Corinthians uh, chapter 6. And we are piggybacking uh, right where Peter had left off. So Peter, uh, or not Peter, First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes in verses 12 to 20. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power, raise raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free? That's a question I want to ask you guys and think about for a second. If you were to explain freedom to a uh, seventh grader, maybe even a seven-year-old, how would you explain freedom? What would you say? Maybe some of us think that freedom is freedom from outside constraint. Uh, maybe some of us think that freedom is college. Maybe summer break, which is just around the corner, and we will be freed from the tyranny of our parent, of our teachers, maybe parents even. Uh, for many of us, we think that freedom is getting away from the watchful eye of our parents. And so a question I want to ask you guys is, what is freedom? What is freedom? Um, a couple weeks ago, I had watched the musical Les Mis um, for the second time. The first time was uh, at Ambassador High School. And, you know, I, I liked Ambassadors, uh, but I, I liked, I think I liked the, the, the Pantages one just a bit more, but only just by a little bit. Um, but if you're unfamiliar with the story Les Mis, um, it centers on the main character, Jean Valjean. And uh, Valjean is a, is a poor man who steals a loaf of bread for his family, and as a result, he's caught... And he's put into prison for five years. And because he's tried to escape from prison, his, his prison sentence actually extends from five years to actually 19 years. And after, after 19 years of imprisonment, he is released on parole and must be identified as an ex-convict. And as a result, you know, no one wants to hire him. Uh, no one even wants to let him stay anywhere. And so he is having a hard time reintegrating himself back into society. And so he actually goes back into a life of stealing and crime. And, you know, despite his uh, background, uh, one night a bishop welcomes him into the church for food and for shelter. But during the middle of the night, 
uh, Valjean steals valuable silverware, and uh, and and uh, not just valuable silverware, but also um, actually no valuable silverware from the church, and he takes off. Okay, and the police find him, and they and they take him back to the church, uh, only for the bishop to tell Valjean that he left in such a hurry that he forgot to take the candlesticks with him too. And so despite knowing that he stole the candlesticks, the bishop tells the police to leave and spares his life. But before he lets Valjean go, he tells him that this mercy comes with a price, that he has been spared and freed for God to no longer live for himself, but to be, in his words, an honest man. Bless you. And I'm not going to sing it, but the bishop says to him, <laughs> by the passion and the blood, in case you can imagine, maybe imagine Zach singing, okay? Uh, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. And it's through his encounter with mercy that Valjean no longer goes back into his life of crime, but comes out a man transformed and changed. Why? It's because his soul has been purchased and bought for God. And so minus, minus some theological inaccuracies, Les Mis is actually a picture of what it looks like to belong to God. And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to remind us of our passage in this evening. And, you know, I know it's been a, a little bit uh, since we've been in 1 Corinthians. So let me just give you guys a brief uh, refresher. Um, as you guys all know, I think by now, maybe some of you guys do, uh, 1 Corinthians is divided up into five different segments. And the first four chapters of Paul's letter marks the first section, and it was a call to unity. I think you guys remember that. Uh, maybe tired of it too. But then beginning in chapter 5, Paul starts a new section of the letter. And this new section is now a call, not from uh, not to unity now, but a call to purity. A call to purity. And so from chapters 5 to 7, Paul calls the, the Corinthians to purity. The last place we left off was when Peter had reminded us of our Christian identity. That we have been washed, that we have been sanctified, that we have been justified in the Lord. And so piggybacking from that passage now, on the heels of that passage, Paul now reminds us in our passage tonight that how we use our freedom and how we use our bodies matter because we have been bought with a price. And so that actually brings us to our key idea this evening. Um, a people centered on Jesus the Messiah are a people who belong to God. And there are three implications of belonging to God. Three implications. The first is belonging to God means that our freedom is not our own. Our freedom is not our own. Now take a look back at verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes again, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now you'll notice that the phrase, all things are lawful for me, are actually in quotations. You guys notice that? And any careful reader of scripture has to ask the question, why? Especially since quotation marks don't actually exist in the Greek. Like if you were to look at the Greek, there are no quotation marks in this passage. And so if quotation marks don't exist in the Greek, it means that the translators of the ESV decided to interpret the phrase as a quote. You guys, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. And I think this, this, this decision, this translation decision, is correct. Because the phrase, all things are lawful for me, is actually uh, a popular catchphrase that proliferated during the first century uh, of Corinth. And, you know, I think we can understand why it was a popular catchphrase. Because the catchphrase simply says, 
I am bound by no rules, and I can do whatever I want. That's the, that's the Eric Kai paraphrase. Um, you want a more modern take on it? It's actually YOLO. Like, you only live once. Therefore, you should do whatever the heck you want, no matter what people think or say. It's, it's the freedom of choice. It's the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, whenever we want, and however we want it. And you know, it's interesting because the word for lawful here isn't the word that we normally use for law keeping or what, or for what's legal. The word that Paul uses is this word called existent, which means authorized. So if I were to actually, if we were to actually translate it a bit more literally, it would actually say all things to me are authorized. In other words, I am the authority. That was the popular catchphrase. And I think, I think we can understand why it was popular. I can do whatever I want. I'm the master of my own fate and destiny. And then we realize that actually 1 Corinthians isn't just a manual for Christian living in the first century. 1 Corinthians is actually an authoritative witness for authentic Christian living for all centuries. What I'm really trying to say is you don't need to go to Corinth to figure out what Corinth was like. Because Corinth is actually in America. Corinth is in our neighborhoods. It's in our schools. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our homes. And it's also in our hearts. Now, many of us think that freedom, going back to the question that I asked earlier, many of us think that freedom is the right to be free from whatever constrains us and the right to do whatever we want. It is liberation uninhibited, By anyone or anything, we live in the 21st century. I am the master of my own fate. People can't tell me what to do with my time, with my life. The church can't tell me what I I should or shouldn't be doing with my body. (coughs) Pastors can't tell me what to do with how I spend my free time. My parents can't tell me to stop going on my phone or which class I should be enrolling in, etc., etc., etc. But one thing that we don't realize is that to be the master of your own fate and destiny is actually really, really crushing. I just want you guys to think about that for a second, okay? One thing that we don't realize is that to be the master of your own fate is actually really, really crushing. Really crushing. Because if you were told all your life that it's up to you, okay, like like picture like all the Disney princess songs, okay, Disney princess songs that tell you that you can, you know, follow your dreams, you know, pursue your heart, all that, If you were told all your life that it's up to you to decide how you look, how intelligent you are, how you carry yourself, how well-liked you are, what do you think will happen when you face opposition, when you face failure, when you face criticism or difficulty from the very same people that you are trying to prove your life to? Does that make sense? If it's all up to you and you will inevitably fail, who do you have left to blame? What ends up happening is because we, is we actually become far more fragile, far more vulnerable, far more anxious because it actually means that we need to be even smarter, even prettier, even more accomplished, even more successful, more everything. And I want you guys to, to understand this. That is the bargain that most of us don't realize. When you live for yourself, you actually don't get more autonomy. You actually get more slavery. You see, our culture doesn't have too high of a view of human freedom, but too low. That's why Paul says in verse 12 that I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, Paul recognizes that the kind of freedom that we have as Christians ultimately is not our own. 
When you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God frees you from the guilt, the shame, the the penalty, the slavery of your sin. On the cross, Jesus took it all and he freed you from it. That is absolutely true. It's wonderful and it's amazing. But many of us forget that that's actually only the half of what freedom actually is. God frees you from yourself and your sin in order to free you for a life in pursuit of him. Freedom is not merely a freedom from, but a freedom for. A rescue from in order to be rescued for. What does this kind of freedom entail? Take a look back at verse 12. If all things are lawful for me, if that's the catchphrase, what is Paul's response, the the non-quotation marks? He says, not all things are helpful, but not all things are helpful. In other words, not all things are beneficial. Not all things are wise. Not all things are useful. Not all things are helpful. And what Paul is saying here is that we're asking incomplete questions. You know, um, having screened many of your guys's, and not just your guys's, but also the junior hires' questions that you guys submit for faith forum, I've concluded that there's no such thing as a bad question, but what I've also concluded, on the other hand, that there is a such thing as an incomplete question. What do I mean by that? Some of us look at Christianity hoping that it will give us permission to do certain things in our lives. Like since we've been forgiven by Jesus, can, can Christians now swear? Since we're forgiven by Jesus, can Christians now vape? Since we're forgiven by Jesus, can Christians get tattoos? And I'm sure at some point in your Christian life, I'm sure you've wondered the question, is it okay for a Christian to do blank? You just fill in the blank. I have no idea what you guys are thinking. I'm sure all of us have thought that before. And you know, these are important questions to ask, but they're just incomplete questions. They don't ask deep enough. The principle that Paul is drawing for us here goes beyond individual choice. Because it isn't just about what you or uh, you can't do. That's why Paul says not all things are beneficial or helpful or profitable. Because the question is, well, helpful to who? Beneficial to who? The, the implication is that whatever we do must be beneficial, helpful, and edifying for others. Edifying for others. Later on in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul will start talking about morally gray areas. And rather than telling what Christians can or can't do, he gives them the same principle that he does here. You know what that principle is? It's love. That is the principle that animates and motivates all of our actions, all of our behaviors. The the deeper principle that animates and operates our actions and words isn't liberty. It's love. Not liberty, but love. It isn't just right to ask if you can do something. The better question to ask is, is it loving if I did this action? Or if I said this thing? Or if I didn't do this thing? Or if I didn't say this thing? In other words, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And I think a lot of us think, and a lot of us equate that God's permission just means God's approval. But that's not the same thing. God, what God permits is not necessarily what he approves. You see, I think the instinctual response is if I can do something, then I should just do it. If I can take 10 APs, which I don't think is humanly possible, then I should do it. 
If I can go out late at night with friends, then I should go out late at night. If my parents let me dress a certain way, then I should let my belly button hang for everyone to see. If I have the money for it, then I should buy it. If my parents don't set a limit on how much I use my phone or computer, then I should milk all the time that I have. But when we use liberty in this way, we use liberty not so much out of concern for other people, but really more concerned for ourselves. When people wrong us, for example, we feel justified in saying things however and whenever we want it, all in the name of truthfulness. They wronged me. And when, and when we are wrong, we, we should call for the other person's apology and repentance. But sometimes, I think, I think sometimes, we do so primarily out of concern for our own welfare and less so out of the actual genuine welfare, welfare of the other person that wronged us. I think like we, we forget that they're actually in sin and that they're actually on the way to a, a worser path if, they were not, if we left their sin unaddressed. But Paul is calling us to slow down and to really think about how the choices that we make aren't just mere, isolated, individual choices that have little consequence. What he wants you to see is that everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you believe, everything that you think in your own heart has consequences that will either positively or negatively affect others. By our actions, we will either build people up or we will tear people down. We, we live in a collective whole. And I think one of the challenges of living in America is that we, just, we, we live in such an individualistic, individualized society that we take little care to actually think, think about the consequences of our actions. But Paul is calling us to think collectively here for the health of the whole body of this youth group. Are you doing things that are either building up one another or are you tearing down one another? That's a legitimate question that you have to ask yourself in considering the question, what is true freedom? What Paul wants us to see is that our freedom is not a freedom unto a love for ourselves, but a freedom unto a love for God and a love for others. How is this possible, you would ask? Well, in 2 Corinthians, in just the letter over, technically two letters over, Paul would encourage the Corinthians with this truth. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, bless you, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I mean, let's just think about it for a second. As the only person with genuine autonomy and freedom, as the only person who has genuine autonomy, Jesus had the ultimate liberty and freedom to do whatever he wanted and pleased. Like he saw a bunch of chumps and fools just living for themselves. And he could have just passed us by. But he didn't. As the freest person who ever lived, should it surprise us that Jesus didn't have to come, on, come into this world? Like, does it, does it shock you that Jesus literally did not have to? But out of sheer grace and love, he would voluntarily, under no compulsion of anyone except his own will, enter into our world and experience, into our sins and our sorrows, and would willingly suffer the wrath of God for us. You see, it's actually, it's actually Jesus' absolute freedom that makes his lowly submission so amazing. 
You know, I think we take it for granted that Jesus actually submitted himself unto death, even death on a cross, while forgetting the fact that Jesus was absolutely free not to. That is the definition of a love that is sovereign, a, a sovereign kind of love. True freedom unto death and unto love. And if you have been gripped by this reality, it changes the question from what can or can't I do today to how should I love today? How should I love today? How should I love tonight with the people sitting next to me? How should I love this weekend? This weekend I have a lot of free time. I can do a lot of things. But the question that we want to be asking ourselves in light of this reality, in light of the cross, is I know I can do this. I know I don't have to do this. But should I do it for the sake of others? I don't know what that is for you guys. It could be a lot of things. Maybe something with your siblings, with your parents. Whatever it is. Since Jesus freely loved me, how will I freely love others? Since Jesus freely loved me, how will I freely love others? You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose yourself and you will save it. But look for yourself. Pursue the interests of yourself. And there you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else. Belonging to God means that our freedom is not our own. Our freedom is not our own. That's the first point. The second point <coughs> is that belonging to God means that our bodies are not our own. So the first point, first implication is that our freedom is not our own. The second point is that our bodies are not our own. Now take a look at verses 13 and 15. Actually, just 13. We'll dip to verses 14 and 15 in just a second. But verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach meant for food. Remember, there's a quotation there. So Paul is quoting, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And what comes, now what, what finally comes into view, into focus, is that Paul isn't merely talking about liberties per se. What he's specifically addressing, this entire paragraph, is sexual immorality. And just from a surface reading of our passage, it appears that Christians were either visiting prostitutes or they were tempted to, at the very least. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why do you think... Why do you think Christians were tempted to do this? Why do you think Christians were tempted to do this? To do this? Well, when the dominant cultural theme is to do whatever you want, should it surprise us that the church also follows suit and is also enticed by the very same things? And so rather than being a countercultural community, the church ends up being just like the community. Rather than being the salt and light in the world, we become just as rotten and dim as the world. But I think a lot of us just like to blame culture. Like it's the world's fault for making its values so enticing, or it's like the influence of our friends, it's so strong. And while the world and our friends and 
everything along with that are obviously a huge factor. It's not the reason why. Let's be honest here. It's not the reason why. That's just the excuse. For example, let me just give you an example. If a piece of meat goes rotten, we don't typically blame the meat. That's just what happens when when meat is left out of the refrigerator. The question to ask is, where's the salt? Where's the preservation? If a house goes dark at night, we don't blame the house. That'd just be dumb. That's just what happens when the sun goes down. The better question to ask is, where is the light? And if society becomes corrupt and dark, there's no point in blaming society. That's just what happens when fallen human nature goes unchecked and unchallenged. The better question to ask is, where are the Christians? Where are the Christians who are willing to live up to the name of being a Christian? The excuse that Christians so often want to hide is that we are failing, or maybe even worse, unwilling to be different from the world, and we just blame the world when we aren't. I think that's worse. When we do that, we're actually worse than the world. Because we're not even taking responsibility for our unwillingness to be Christians. And that's why Paul calls us to take responsibility for our indifference. It's why he has to remind us, maybe even pound over and over again, rather, who we are. And so in verse 13, you'll notice that Paul Paul is quoting yet another popular saying of the Corinthians. That food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, why why is this a popular saying? Because what they're saying is that just as the stomach is for food, so also the body is for sex. In other words, Who cares what we do with our bodies if God is going to destroy both food and the body anyway? And I think if you lived in the 21st century today, I think we can see that being very enticing. Why? That would be a popular catchphrase. Isn't that exactly what our culture says? You can do whatever you want with your body. Who cares? The body doesn't matter. But do you know what that philosophy is? You guys might not have heard of this. You know what that philosophy is? It's nothing other than good old Platonism. Isn't that what Platonism is? No? Okay. Maybe not good old, but just old. Um, What is Platonism? If if you've never heard of what Platonism is, here's the TLDR. The Greek philosopher Plato believed that the body is a cage that traps your real self. Okay? Does that make sense? Therefore, the body, your body, is really just a container for your soul. Okay? And it really doesn't matter how you treat your body as a result. And it was this philosophy that was seeping into the Corinthian church. Does it make sense? Okay, they saw the body merely as just a container. It was not important. The soul was more important than the body. And even in saying that, is it possible, is it possible for something similar of a philosophy like that to seep into our church? I mean, let's just think about it for a second, okay? How many of you guys have heard of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata? I think all of us have, okay? We all love her. Johnny Erickson Tata is a faithful Christian who has been walking with the Lord for 50 years with, uh, with, uh, as, as a quadriplegic. Okay? In other words, she has spent the majority of her life with her four limbs, her arms, and her feet paralyzed due to a spinal injury. And you know, I, I, love, I love Johnny, Johnny's uh, testimony. And I, I know, I know Lighthouse also loves Johnny's testimony. So I'm subjecting myself to possibly stone, to be stoned 
for critiquing something that she shares she shared once. Okay, so but I'm not a Catholic, so um, I, I venerate no one except Jesus. But there was a sharing that she had shared six years ago at Grace Community Church. And to be fair, the, the, the entire sharing was great. I loved it. But there was, one, there was something that she had said that I didn't think was quite actually accurate. This is a quote that many others have quoted, some of the pastors have quoted too. But this is what she says, okay? She says, don't be thinking that for me in heaven, the big deal after I get to see Jesus is to, is, is to get my, my new body. No, no, no. I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth, resists God, looks for an escape, gets defeated by sin, becomes anxious or worrisome, manipulates my husband with precisely timed phrases. Now from a surface reading, from, from a surface hearing even, that sounds great. Like who wouldn't want a glorified heart in the new heavens and the new earth where we don't grumble or worry or complain? Amen to that. But as I thought about it a bit more, it revealed a problem that's, I think, I think subtle enough just to slip by. The problem wasn't that she had a high view of the new heart, of a glorified heart. The problem was that she had too low a view of the body. Did you guys catch that? It, the, problem, the problem was not that she had a high view of the heart. The problem was that she had too low of a view of the body. Could it be possible that even for a conservative church like Lighthouse to be imbalanced and platonic with how we view the heart and the body. Let me, let, me, let me posit a question for you guys. What if the body and the soul are actually equally important to the Lord? In fact, why, why does Paul devote all of chapter 15 talking about the physical resurrection of the body and the immortality of our bodies? Why does that matter so much? To Paul, it's the reason why Paul says in verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He's not talking about the heart here. He's talking about a resurrected body. What if God created or cared so much about the physicality of the new creation that there will be a physical heaven coming down to earth? That heaven isn't just some place in the sky, but will actually be God's resting place on earth. Does it surprise us? Paul was not a, he was not a Greek, okay? Paul was a Jew. And as a Jew, Paul saw the person as a unified whole, as embodied souls. It wasn't that you have a soul and that you have a body. It's rather that you are a body and that you are a soul, Okay? The body or the soul are not merely containers for yourself. You are a body and you are a soul. If God cared more about our hearts than our bodies, why would he need to send Jesus as a baby born in a manger and not simply the Holy Spirit to extract us from our bodies? Body and soul both matter to God. A failure to grasp this means that we've actually forgotten how deep and how total sin corrupts. It corrupts not only the heart, it corrupts the body too. And God is in the business, I'm so glad that God is in the business of redeeming the entire person and the entire creation. Therefore, therefore, we should want a new body 
that can walk and not faint, to run and not grow weary, to run after God and chase after him with all that we are, just as much as we want a new heart that will not grumble or complain or worry. We should want them both equally, not just one or the other. Johnny might want only a new heart, but I want all of it. I want the fullness of redemption. I want a new heart and a new body so that I can love him with all that I am, with my entire, every fiber of my being, with heart, soul, mind, and strength, the entire being. What Paul is simply saying is that your body matters because your body is for the Lord. And what Paul is calling us to is a distinct vision of our bodies, a distinct vision of our bodies. And it's in light of Paul's vision of the body that makes his call to purity so much more important, does it not? Take a look at verses 15 to 17. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is how important the body is to the Lord. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that your body is joined with Jesus the Messiah by faith. It is a spiritual union that is actually in many ways like marriage. You are united with him. If you are a Christian, you are united. You are joined with Jesus. Joined with him. I mean, just just think about that the gravity of that for a second. You are joined with Jesus the Messiah. The, the Israelites had no possible way of being even close to to, God, to Yahweh, except through a priest. You are joined through Jesus. And therefore, how can you allow your body to be joined with another person's? That's why sex isn't a re- recreational activity that our culture claims to be. Sex is deeply physical with, with deep spiritual ramifications where it, unites, where it unites you to another person, even though you're not actually married to them. The imagery that Paul is trying to draw for us here is that when you are on your phone looking at God knows what, or when you are privately doing God knows what, you are actually dragging Jesus into whatever you're doing and whatever you're looking at. Is that what you want Jesus to see? Is that what you want Jesus to meet near? Since you are a member of Jesus the Messiah, you are mingling the spirit into whatever thought or lust that you're actually feeling. And so Paul calls us to run. He says, therefore, in verse verse 18, he says, flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You know, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. And the word was actually a catch-all phrase that referred to any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant but it can also refer to any kind of sexual motive or lust that can occur whether you're married or not. In other words, what what Paul is actually really saying here is he's not merely talking about prostitution. I hope none of us are doing that. He's definitely talking about the activity or behavior, but he's also talking about the motivation. 
It's from the place of motivation, from that place, from the heart, that Paul says to flee, to run, to give no opportunity for it. And I wish that we'd spend more time on this. And you know, I think it might be more appropriate later to actually do a gender-specific topics, topical series on this. But right now, the Apostle Paul is calling us to have a radical amputation of our desires and our behaviors and our actions. Radical amputation. Don't reason with it. Don't test to see how far you can touch the fire without being singed. Don't experiment. Don't test your resolve or self-proclaimed self-control. Sin, even small sin, will always take you farther than you expect it to go and cost you far more than you're actually willing to pay. Sin, small sin at that, will always take you farther than you expect it to go and cost you far more than you're willing to pay. And if you don't flee sexual immorality and you instead flee from God instead, don't be surprised that that Satan will provide every kind of backdoor, every kind of opportunity that you need. Don't be surprised that the means to rebel against God will just present themselves to you magically even. And what I want you to realize is that the defining moments of your life, just, just think about it for a second, okay? Because I just think that we think too, maybe a little too myopic and not far enough. Many of us think that the defining moments of our lives are the big moments of our lives. You know, like, you know, crossing the finish line, finishing SATs, you know, getting into UCLA or Berkeley, whatever. Those are not the defining moments. The defining moments of your life aren't the big moments when people are watching, but actually the moments when no one but God is. The defining, life-shaping moments that fill our lives aren't the moments that people see, but the moments that people don't see. It's the moments of what you do in private. It's the moments of what you're thinking in your head and in your heart. The moments of what you do behind closed doors. The moments of what you do on your phone late at night. The defining moments are the ones that you think about or feel in your heart. It's a million little things. The indulgence of little evils. Little thoughts of discontentment maybe. Discouragement. Bitterness, the acceptance of little bits of worldliness, little bits of evil, little bits of compromise. Bless you. Or they are filled with million little things of hard work. Little self-denials, little self-restraint. The cultivation of little acts of integrity, of virtue that no one will see except God. C.S. Lewis, um, again, I'm just quoting him a lot these days. But um, in, in the book, the book Screwtape Letters, um, you guys familiar with the Screwtape Letters? Yeah? For those that aren't, uh, the Screwtape Letters is a book uh, on the Christian life from the perspective of a demon. And I think it's actually really creative, really, uh, really witty, uh, really smart. And since it's written from the perspective of a demon, they call God the enemy. And, and so it, and the, the book centers on uh, this guy named Screwtape, uh, he is a, uh, a senior uh, demon who is discipling his nephew, Wormwood, uh, in the ways of being a demon. Okay, so he's training him how to entice human beings away from God. Okay? And in one chapter of the book, Wormwood was concerned that the person that he was tempting wasn't committing scandalous enough sins. Listen to what Screwtape says 
to his nephew Wormwood. He says, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The extent from which you uh, um, separate the man from God. It does not matter how small the sins are are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than leisure if leisure can do the trick of edging him away and away from the enemy. Indeed, this this is the quote that everyone quotes. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. No warning. The point of this quote is that the big things, the big sins, don't need to push you over when the little things collectively will do just as good of a job. One of the most sobering things about pastoral ministry as a pastor is that I hear stories of pastoral failure. And I, I think I've like shared stories with you guys before, but I think it just merits talking about it with you again because I've just heard another, about another one not too long ago. But it's, I hear stories of pastors losing their jobs. They, they lose their families. They lose the respect of their kids. They lose their church. And worse yet, sometimes they lose God. But all of this, I want you to know, doesn't happen overnight. All these stories that I hear about pastoral failure, they don't happen overnight. Like none of these guys ever wake up one day thinking, I'm going to cheat on my wife or I'm going to ruin my church. None of, them, none of them are ever waking up in the morning thinking that. How does that happen? How do pastoral failures happen? It happens through the little moments of lust that no one knows about, that no one sees, no one hears, there's no accountability through the little moments of discontentment, through the little moments of impatience, jealousy, rage. And so as a result, a question that I want to ask all of you is, who knows the real you? Do people know you, your struggles, your failures? And are people speaking into those struggles and failures? Who are the people that can speak into your life about this? Who can provide accountability for you if you don't have it? Who can challenge you? And I hope that we can be a high school group where we can shoulder each other's burdens and care for one another. Not merely because we have to, but because our souls and our bodies depend on it. It really does. It's the reason why Paul says at the the end of verse 18, he says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. All sin is terrible. Okay, all sin is terrible. But sexual sin is particularly different and distinct because you sin against your own body. Not just your soul, but your body. Why? Because unlike any other sin or any other violation, sexual sin or sexual violence leaves wounds on your body for all of eternity. And so a question that maybe some of you guys are asking is, will we, will we get over the wounds and the scars of maybe 
our own sexual sin or maybe even sexual violation, will it, will it surprise you if I say no? You might say, Eric, that really isn't hopeful at all. I thought God renews all things. And trust me, God does. What if, what if God's renewal is actually in the scars? Have you ever thought about that? What if God's renewal is in the scars? What if the wounds and scars that we carry aren't meant to go away because the wounds and scars exist to daily show and remind us that this is precisely where God met us, where the love of God reached down to the dark pits of our hearts and our bodies. That this is actually where God met us, in our wounds and in our scars. You know, there's a passage at the end of the Gospel of John, and Thomas, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, said, which is why he's called Doubting Thomas. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, Jesus shows up and he says, and he actually just, he just walks through the wall. Okay? He said, the, John records that the door is locked. Okay. When he just walks through. Okay. doesn't matter. Um, he says, put your finger here. Put your finger here. And see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Why is this story here? Why does, why does John record this story for us? You know, Jesus could have, he could have had a woundless body after his resurrection. You guys ever wonder that? You guys ever thought about that? He could have had a woundless body after the resurrection. Okay, this is after he has resurrected. But I think he chose not to, not for himself, but I think for us. Jesus never got over his scars and his wounds. The holes in his hands and the scar in his side are meant to show us that he has fully taken on our wounds and our scars. That in the wounds and scars of our Savior is where we actually find rest and salvation from our own wounds and our scars. And sometimes I think we just need that reminder that there is holes in his hands an opening on his side to remind us that he was pierced for us, crushed for us. In the new heavens and the new earth, will we still have our old scars? And you know, I'm not sure, but if we do, God will only leave the scars on your body to show us that that was where he met us precisely. Where he met us every time. And it brings us to the third point. The third point is belonging to God means that we are not our own. So the second point is that belonging to God means that our bodies are not our own. The third point is that we are not our own. We are not our own. Verses 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul gives us the ultimate reason why our freedom and our bodies are not our own. It's because we are not our own. And I know I've, this is the third time I will be talking about this, but I, but I just love it so much. Like I, the, the question, what is our only hope in life and death? That is... I really hope that if you leave this high school group, like this is the one thing that you will remember, that we are not 
our own. That we belong. Body and soul. And I think that, that phrase takes a little different meaning now. Now that we've looked at this passage. That body and soul, both in life and in death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest privilege of the Christian. That is the heart of Christian discipleship and also the hope of Christian discipleship, that we are not our own. And Paul expands this kind of ownership. Why? How is it possible? What does it even mean that we're not our own? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think about that for a second. Israelites longed to have what you currently have as a Christian. In the Old Testament, the only way that you were able to approach God was through a high priest. And even the high priest was only allowed in in the, in the most holy of holy places once a year on the Day of Atonement. You get the Day of Atonement every single day. Every single day. The Spirit dwells in you, Christian. Your body is not your own. You are not your own. We are the tabernacle of God. Whereas in chapter 3, Paul says that the collective church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But now, here in this passage in chapter 6, the individual Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? What is the point? It's because your body... Your soul, your life, your existence, your entire being exists to show what God is like to the whole world, Christian. That's the reason why Paul says to glorify God in your body. You belong to God. You bear his stamp. You are now his representative. You are his representative. And you demonstrate to the people around you, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, what it is to be loved by the sovereign king and to be a distinct counterculture on behalf of his kingdom. What a, what a privilege. Because like Valjean, our souls have been bought by God with, with the ransom price of his son's blood in order that we might be a people transformed and changed to bear witness to the God who is in the process of making all things new, body and soul. A people centered on Messiah are a people who belong to God. And that is great news for the Christian. Let's pray together. God, you're our only hope. And God, I know that this was, a, I think, a particularly hard passage for many, many of us because we are confronted with the darkest secrets of our hearts and the deepest, deepest pockets that even maybe people don't even know about except you. And so, God, I I thank you that we have this time together as a church, as the collective temple of God, to speak truth in love in each other's lives, to allow sin to be revealed, for it to come out of darkness and into the light, because we thank you for the great hope that just as, as Paul writes in Ephesians, that Christ shines on the sleeper, and he calls us to awake from our slumber, to awake from the darkness because we have seen his marvelous light. God, we thank you. We love you so much. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.